This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Lauren Sauer, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and the director of the Special Pathogens Research Network, NITEC's research infrastructure arm. For those of you not yet familiar with NITEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across health systems in the United States with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NITEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. Joining me today as co-host is Ms. Rachel Luckadoo, a public health lawyer and assistant professor at UNMC with me. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Lauren. Rachel and I are coming together to bring you the fourth episode in our series about pathogens and pop culture. Pathogens are everywhere, and we're going to bring you some of the best and brightest experts to get a reality check on what's science and what's Hollywood in some of our favorite shows, books, and movies. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Dr. Caitlin Rivers. Dr. Rivers is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and one of my very good friends. Her research focuses on improving public health preparedness and response, particularly by improving capabilities for outbreak science and infectious disease modeling to support public health decision-making. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Thanks. It's great to be here with both of you. Thanks for joining us. So maybe just to start, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and the role special pathogens play in your life, especially in the last few years. Sure. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist, and I specialize in epidemics, pandemics, and biosecurity, which has a pretty good overlap with many of the special pathogens that the need to network handles. I've been at Johns Hopkins about six years, but I left for a year to work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So I've had experience and seen public health response both on the academic side and also at the federal level. So it's been a great opportunity to get to know many different corners of public health practice. Well, thanks so much for joining us here today. I mean, we've talked a lot in the past few years about our potential retirement jobs, probably in no small part, thanks to all the work we've been doing during the pandemic. And I know one of those potential retirement jobs was your interest in writing mystery novels. So we thought it'd be fun to just talk to you about how a mystery novel writer could use pathogens as a plot point. Yes. If it's not something related to selling t-shirts on the beach, I think mystery writer sounds like a good backup. Pencil me in. And you've written dozens of op-eds and your Substack force of infection just hit 60 posts. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing, your writing style, and how you decide what you'll write about on your Substack? Sure. Yes. Op-eds I generally put together when I have a point of view that I see is not being expressed widely enough in the public's discussion. So, for example, this spring, I wrote an op-ed for Foreign Affairs, arguing that we should be leaning into preparing for H5N1, which is an avian influenza that's hitting birds and poultry very hard and has the potential to spill into humans. And I felt like that epidemic in birds was not getting enough attention. So that motivated the op-ed. I take a little bit of a different perspective, though, for force of infection. I write something of a weather report for what's going around. 
the kinds of pathogens that keep us out of work and school, not special pathogens, but the regular old bugs. And I started that because I saw that as the pandemic left headline news, there were a lot of people who are immunocompromised, who are older in age, who have kids and have missed so much school that everyone is on edge. And there, there weren't any resources really serving those people, alerting them to what's COVID doing? What's influenza doing? What's adenovirus doing? And so force of infection really takes a look at what's going around so that people can make better decisions in their lives. I think that's really cool, Caitlin. I appreciate you giving that look at what's actually going on. But if we look at the completely fictional side of things with pathogens, I know there's been a lot of books out there by Michael Crichton and Richard Preston and Stephen King and all these different authors that use pathogens or bioterrorism as a, a plot point. So have you read any of those kind of books or books that have featured pathogens as a plot point before? And are there any that you think have done a really good job? Yeah, I think all of those authors are great and really put you on the edge of your seat. Richard Preston stands out for me because most of his books are nonfiction. And I think that he is one of the authors that's really told the story of epidemiology in a way that's really gripping and really illuminates the stakes, I guess, but with nonfiction. Whereas authors like Michael Crichton and Stephen King similarly really do a great job of showing why epidemiology and special pathogens are important. But if it's fictionalized, then it's a little bit harder to draw a direct parallel with the kinds of scenarios that we consider in our work. So I'm really impressed by Richard Preston's work. It's so interesting to me how how much more the public has the lexicon down for epidemiology. Does that change your writing style at all because of the public sort of awareness of of the terms that we use in our in our research and our practice from day to day that now have become words that we see in front page news stories. It is a little bit funny the years long battle to get journalists, for example, to use isolation and quarantine correctly because often they're used interchangeably and they're actually not. Uh, I think we've made a little bit of progress on that, but I do sometimes still see um, a few slip ups in, in the media. But I think for me, what's changed so much with the pandemic and the way that readers connect with writing about epidemiology is that we no longer need to sell why what we do is so important. It used to be you'd have to spend a lot of time explaining this could change our everyday lives. It could disrupt economies. It could have political, geopolitical implications because that didn't used to be a given to the average person. They may not have really deeply understood the intersection between pandemics and stability. But that's no longer the case. It's now very clear that pandemics can be enormously impactful. And so I think people are ready to grapple with the next level and really go deeper on the issues because there's so much relevance to our everyday lives now. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I wonder if that's actually why we're seeing more and more pathogens in pop culture, so to speak. People understand the impact that these diseases, these pathogens can have on our everyday life. And so they become compelling tools for driving a story forward. They're relatable in a way that they, they never used to be, unfortunately, but it does mean that we can have, I think, deeper and broader conversations about what it means to be prepared and how we can advance epidemiology and preparedness. So I appreciate that as a silver lining. So if you were going to write the next great bio mystery novel and you were going to use one of these pathogens in a story, how would you start to think about writing about that agent? think I've thought about this a little bit too much, but here's my my starting premise. You have to decide from the outset whether you're going to completely adhere 
to reality. Like every detail is going to be correct or you're going to fictionalize it to an extent that you would never mistake the fictionalized pathogen for a real pathogen. Because as a subject matter expert, it's that unsweet spot, that uncanny valley that's really unpleasant. I can put aside my expertise if I'm going to read about a space pathogen that has no bearing on reality, but that's fine. Or if an author does a really good job sticking to the facts, I can read and enjoy a book like that. But if it's in the middle, it's no good. So I think you got to really make a decision about that from the start. Yeah, I'll just ask a follow-up question on that. So does it drive you crazy when you read about pathogens or biology or even public health-focused things in these novels where they don't quite get it right and they are in that I love that term, uncanny valley. I know we use it a lot for AI, but it's right here, too, where you're like, you kind of know what you're talking about, but you just miss the mark enough for this not to be in any way enjoyable for me. Yeah, it really hits the ear wrong and throws you out of the story. So I think that that is no good. And I think that most authors, for good reason, choose pathogens that are human-to-human transmissible because there's a natural element of suspense there. It's a small outbreak, and then it's bigger, and then it's larger, and, and so on. And so I think that that's a nice device to keep the plot going. But there have been, I've seen more and more stories recently of non-traditional approaches, authors that take pathogens that don't, that aren't necessarily human to human transmissible. And I think it's really creative how fungal infections had their day with, uh, what was the name of that recent TV show? Um, I saw another one that was a sort of twist on allergens and the idea of like an environmental contaminant that was toxic, I guess, similar to the fungal pathogens, but that's really inventive. And I appreciate that the authors were able to take a new tack on an old literary device. Yeah, absolutely. And also the name of the show is The Last of Us. And Caitlin, thank you for providing this way for us to plug episode number one, where we explored that show a little bit more. But back to the topic at hand. So do you see any risk, Caitlin, in giving too accurate of information? We're, we're living in this age of pandemic threats and bioweapons. So is there a risk when writing fiction of giving too accurate of scientific information? Yeah, sometimes that's called info hazard, informational hazard. Another term that people might have heard is something like a copycat situation, which isn't just applied to bio threats, but also mass shooter events and any kind of crime that captures headlines. And certainly I think it's wise to be mindful about what any of us are putting out in the world and how it could be misused or misunderstood. But I also see the flip side, which is that a really compelling, believable story can be an enormous tool for motivating change and action. So there are many allegorical anecdotes, meaning there are anecdotes, but I, I don't know the truth to them which of them are true, if any, that that presidents, past presidents, have read Michael Crichton or have read John Barry's book on influenza. And the power of those stories were such that the senior most leaders in government were inspired to take significant action to improve our nation's preparedness. And so I think stories well told that are realistic can have enormous benefits as well. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think we have seen in the pandemic alone the value of storytelling in compelling good public health practice, right? So you're not going to win minds and and hearts by showing someone the best Lancet paper or the best JAMA article on why masks work. But you may get them to buy into that by 
telling a really interesting story about how people feel like masks have saved lives or how some other public health intervention has saved lives. At University of Nebraska, our chancellor actually has a a local TV show called Rural Health Matters, and he's been able to reach the public that might not otherwise be plugged into what best public health practice is by inviting guests on, talking about their concerns, talking about the things that really impact these people out in rural Nebraska. And it has changed people's behavior in really meaningful ways because the story hits home, the story is compelling, and the story is meaningful to them. And so I totally agree with you that there is that real value in these stories that can actually drive not just practice, but policy forward. I think so, too. And I think you're right that as scientists, what we perceive to be compelling or as compelling to us permanently are charts and figures and data. But the truth is that stories are a much more widely shared way to experience the world and to to share experiences. And I think that learning to be a good science communicator means relearning how to tell stories and to make that connection. So I think that that's a skill set that we could stand to use more of in public health. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know about you guys. I know we all teach in public health institutions, but I've seen in my students recently a real desire to learn more about how to use effective storytelling, how to use effective communication methodologies and modalities to better tell the story of public health, which I think is great because we can't just sit in our academic houses on the hill and and hope that people get the message. You know, we have an opportunity right now to really tell the story of public health in a way that we never have before and put practitioners out there who are doing the same. And stories fundamentally are about change. Something happens and and that something changes the beginning of the story to the end of the story. And that's exactly the arc of public health as well. The work that we do changes the world from one state to another, a better state. And so, you know, although the scale can be a little bit difficult, I'm a faculty at Johns Hopkins and our motto is saving lives millions at a time. It's a little less tangible, I guess, than medicine, for example, which shares a lot of story uh, doctors. Um, share a lot of stories about experiences they had with individual patients. It's harder to do that in public health. But I think the arc of our work lends itself very well to storytelling. I also think, too, as we talk about these kind of fictional novel-type representations of pandemics or different pathogens, et cetera, I think that can be really helpful, especially in this age of politicization that we've seen through COVID and and public health response the last few years. You know, I think if someone can read a story that's separated from all the noise and all the politics, it may be a lot easier for them to connect to the the public health concepts or just general scientific concepts therein. It seems like it's a nice way to, to cut back on some of the feedback that they may be getting otherwise. Yeah, I totally agree. Actually, I have one follow-up question to Rachel's question for you, Caitlin. So in a lot of our real-world jobs, we've heard a lot about the the concept of dual-use research of concern. And I feel like there's a there is a corollary here where people like Michael Creighton, who might be writing about real-world events, if you tell too much onto the science of that story, do you think there's an opportunity for it to be used for bad instead of good? You know, scientists have a responsibility to look at the type of work they're doing and work with policymakers, with regulatory people to determine whether or not 
there's potential for dual use research of concern when they're doing that research. Do you think authors have that same responsibility? I think about that more for scientific authors, people who are doing research and writing up the results and the, the methods of their research. With media met for a broader audience, these are often very technical skills that require a lot of laboratory equipment and, and specialized knowledge. So I think that the opportunity for misuse is actually probably lower for a general audience just because the barrier to entry is so high. But it's always a good idea if you are touching on topics that could be misused to consider what the broader impacts of sharing that knowledge are. So it's worth thinking about, but I wouldn't say it should really hold back scientists or authors from exploring these topics as long as they're willing to spend a moment to consider how to do that wisely. So, Caitlin, assuming that you could have this retirement job of writing mystery novels involving pathogens, what do you think are some of the best pathogens to use as a literary device? That's a tricky one. I think that I would probably choose one that's human-to-human transmissible because I do think I, I like the sense of urgency that would come in a story where you're racing against an outbreak. And it also gives an opportunity for characters to really come into like it's the it's the it's interaction that spreads pathogens and for a storytelling device i think the opportunity to really follow characters would be useful but the exact pathogen i i really don't know and i would be curious to know what what you both think there's the flashy pathogens if you will like ebola for example that i think many authors reach for but i don't really feel comfortable I wouldn't feel comfortable using a pathogen like that because that's a real, it's a real virus that affects real people and that has devastated communities. So personally, I'm, I would almost say that a fictional pathogen would be where I would be most comfortable. Yeah, that makes total sense. I feel like it it also makes your job easier going back to what we were talking about in that either go all in on a fully realistic scenario where you're learning a lot about that pathogen or make it up and talk to experts on what it could potentially be like. And it it seems like a made-up pathogen would also give you a lot more opportunity to, to sort of create the challenging environment that you want to, to give it the unique characteristics. Although I will say every, every few months, it seems like we're hearing about emerging special pathogens or emerging threats. Absolutely. And I, a fictional pathogen would make it more difficult to do that real world impact that I was mentioning earlier. I, you know, I think John Barry's book on 1918 influenza has been credited with really highlighting the importance of pandemic preparedness and the enormous and wide reaching impacts that pandemics have. And I don't think that his book would have had the same resonance had it been fictionalized. It was the fact that it was real that made it so powerful. And so there's something there that appeals to me as well. Yeah, could you could you see a situation where you almost describe like an actual pathogen and then you replace it with a with a fictional one to avoid those those very real issues that you described, right? Where people have had the experience, have lived the trauma of um, being infected with these real pathogens, but you can use a real one as a that sort of framework and then change it enough that it becomes fictionalized. Yeah, that's that's a good point, and it, it makes me think too of the. Rajneeshi bioterror event in the 1980s, where I, um, it was a cult, I suppose, in uh, rural Oregon, if I have my facts straight, uh, actually ended up contaminating restaurants with salmonella so that 
many, many, many local residents, I think over 600, became infected with salmonella. And that was a real event with plenty of unusual characters and real-world impacts. And I think there was a network Netflix series about, or maybe it was a movie about that event, but I'm not sure I've seen that in, in writing. So maybe there's a little germ of an idea there, too. Yeah, that story is actually one of the things that, that really interested me in sort of infectious disease epidemiology. It's just so bizarre, but, you know, obviously hundreds of people were affected by it. And and it just goes to show the impact that these absolutely microscopic things can have on our lives. I mean, we're, we've all been living it the last few years with COVID-19, but day to day we're seeing threats emerge and we're, we're continuing to grapple with the challenges of infectious disease threats throughout the country and throughout the world. And the number of different directions the threat can come from, salmonella is not on anyone's list of heavy-hitting bioterror pathogens, and yet it was one of two deliberate event incidents in the United States. And, and so it just goes to show you how many pathogens that epidemiologists have to be prepared for. Yeah, absolutely. I will say, I watched the Netflix special on it. It was Wild Wild Country, and they did not really focus on the pathogens involved very much. So I think you still have room if you want that to be your creative resource. There's still room to talk about that incident. That's good to know. I'm delighted. Put it on the list. So one of the things that I think we've all grappled with in our day jobs is is this challenge of mistrust of public health and science overall, or maybe it's not mistrust, but a lack of the trust that we used to have and a lot of questioning. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on on this genre of storytelling is there a way in there to sort of rebuild trust and engage the public in the conversation, especially now that they're so fluent in the language, so to speak? I like to think so, and I'm hopeful. I think it was Rachel who earlier described how being able to visualize someone else's life and experience and walking with them, I guess, in the form of a story can be so powerful for peeking into other people's lives, other worlds, and really does sidestep a lot of the political static that is clinging to public health right now. And so I think there's great power there. Um, and I hope that we see that that power manifest change. But it's going to be a years-long process. So I think that we as public health professionals should be prepared to be in it for the long haul. Do you think that there's a role of, for like journalists and storytellers on like maybe we should be getting them more integrated into public health faculty to start teaching formally? So we're not just relying on scientists who happen to be good communicators or have some bit of training in communication to start to build that capability. Yeah, I love that idea. And I love the idea, which I think you just touched on, of teaching scientists more storytelling principles. And also giving journalists or authors more opportunities, more outlets, more support to be able to tell stories using their skill sets. So I, I think it's a really rich, rich field with rich opportunity. So I think now that we're, gosh, three years out, a little over three years out from the onset of the COVID pandemic, which is wild to think about. Yeah, I think we're starting to see more books come out that are either written about the pandemic or that have the pandemic as kind of this backdrop of the story. So do you think that novels and books can help both the writer and the reader process the emotional impacts of the pandemic and that experience? 
Absolutely. I think it's really helpful to see experiences synthesized and put to words and played out in fiction. And that's why there are so many books with themes about grief, for example, or the trials of parenthood or many of these experiences that are so powerful and affect so many of us, but are difficult to really get your arms around. And I think, too, there were so many different pandemic experiences. How a nurse experienced the pandemic was different from how someone who was able to work from home experienced it from other frontline workers. And so I think there are so many different narrative threads to explore and so many ways to use fiction or nonfiction to get a glimpse into the way that other people experience the pandemic that can maybe help us to build more of a shared out understanding of what these years have meant and how what they did to people, really. So will you use this path towards retirement? Do you see yourself a, a mystery novel writer in the future writing about pe- special pathogens? Uh, I think I'd better stick to professoring, but I'm telling you, someday (laughs) it's on my to-do list. I'm going to call that a backup plan to my retirement plan, which is to open a tiki bar and yoga studio in Costa Rica. See, that sounds delightful. I could get on board with that as well. I'm happy to be the test audience for both the tiki bar drinks and the novels produced. So this is a really (laughs) solid plan. I like it. It sounds like a great vacation, honestly. Yeah. Pick up a a Caitlin Rivers novel in the airport and then head to Costa Rica. That sounds perfect. (laughs) Perfect. So we thought to close, or at least I thought to close, it would be fun to talk about some more potential ideas for a pathogen-based novel. And Caitlin, you kind of touched on this when you were saying which pathogen would be best to write about. So Lauren and I were talking about all the different news stories that have come out in the last year relating to pathogens and how wild some of those stories have been and about which would be best for a novel, what would have the best storyline. And I thought one of the best ones would be this issue we're seeing of permafrost starting to melt and potential exposure of new pathogens or you know, not really new, maybe pretty ancient pathogens coming out. That is where I would like to see some stories written. Lauren, what about you? I think for me, one of the recent stories on wastewater surveillance, which has obviously become a big thing, it's become a huge thing in COVID-19 surveillance, especially as our testing rates drop across the country. And so recently there was a story about how wastewater surveillance is showing COVID activity going back up. And I was thinking it would be cool if someone using wastewater surveillance, which is a relatively new tool in our toolkit, broadly detects a secret bio lab and finds out that people are doing all kinds of secret experimentation. That sort of combines the story of wastewater surveillance with that California bio lab that was just discovered. So that's what I would do. I would read both of those. (laughs) And for me, I've been noticing a lot of stories in the news related to space travel, like new missions being planned. And uh, one particularly interesting and underappreciated corner of public health is planetary protection, which is ensuring that outbound spacecraft are not contaminated with Earth pathogens and making sure that returning spacecraft are not contaminated with anything that may exist in outer space. And I feel like Michael Crichton kind of swept the board with Andromeda strain, like that's a really hard act to follow, but it's been a number of years. So I think that a space germ would be a great idea for a thriller at least oh yeah i would absolutely read that 
I would read that either direction, whether it was like us taking germs somewhere else or germs coming to Earth. Either way, that's an interesting story. I think we ran the gauntlet on uh, pathogens in literature and popular media today. So thanks so much for joining us, Caitlin. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And for those of you listening at home, thanks for tuning in to this episode on pathogens as literary devices. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds, including future pathogens in pop culture episodes. If you have any questions for NITEC or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at that's info at N-E-T-E-C dot org. Or you can find us on the web at netech.org slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We will see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NETech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.